This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Second hour of Kelly and Ramia. Thanks for being with us. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin. And we've still got a lot of program ahead. Know your rights. Of course, we visit with our Smart Life friends over there at CNIB Smart Life. And it's time as we settle back in here and appreciate you returning with us for uh, this week's first community report as we visit with one of our community reporters. The reporters come on to the program and give us some idea of things going on in their area. Tell us about some cool stuff in their region that we we should know about. And it's always wonderful to talk with these folks. We invite Carol April to join us, our community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. Carol, welcome back. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Great to be back with you. Always wonderful because you bring us a tremendous report. All right, let's begin first with Accessibility Community Forum. What's going on here? Yeah, this is a very interesting event that I urge all people in the Vancouver area to register and attend. It's put on by the Connectra Society, which is part of the Disability Foundation. And it's going on Friday, this Friday at the Queen Elizabeth Theater, back in-person events. We're very happy to have those out here. And what the Disability Foundation and Connectra did was they put out a survey to all people with disabilities asking, what are your barriers to travel? So here we are, it's almost spring, and maybe we're thinking about making summer plans. And so this survey identified all kinds of areas that might be barriers for people with uh, disabilities for travel. And when I took this survey, I have to say, I told a friend, it hit me right between the eyes um, because Mm. I realized I don't know if you ever tried to use the Arrive Can app, but it was oh, not no. accessible. Mm-mm. No, no. And they knew that, Carol, from the beginning. The, the, we, we, it was um, pointed out, the government was informed, and then they proceeded to do nothing about it. Um, they acknowledged, right. oh, yeah, we know it could have been fixed. They spent millions to get this thing rolled out for everyone, which barely anyone used, and, and it wasn't. Um, I got to ask, since you did the survey, are we looking at mainly stuff pandemic and post-pandemic related, or does the survey really ask people even to think about what things they've identified as issues traveling through their life or or for the things that they may be wanting to do that they recognize, oh, that's a barrier for me to do that because... You know what? The, the results of this survey are what are going to be discussed on Friday, and they're going to be discussed in front of the new disability minister of BC. We have a new uh, oh, provincial government here. So she will be in attendance, as well as somebody from YVR, our airport, um, somebody from Destination BC, which is sort of the province-wide travel uh, agency. And I think that I was impressed with the level of specificity in the study, in the in the questionnaire, because they asked about rural areas. They asked about going to islands. They asked about uh, bus stops. And of course, for all of us in the low vision and blind community, the way the bus stop is set up, the way the apps, again, are accessible or not, this makes all the difference in in whether we're going to take a trip or not. And transportation mm-hmm. is so critical. That That's what I mean when I said the survey hit me between the eyes, because I realized, wait a minute, if I don't rely on my husband to drive, I need to find another way. And so everybody is in a situation where before they consider a trip of travel of any kind, be it in town, in the province, or even internationally, all of these things have to be figured out in advance. And I think by bringing this group together and having the conversation with government and uh, private officials, and I think there are gonna be funders there too, but airing our truth and making it known uh, is the first step. And I think this is going to be a great forum for that. So to register, yeah. uh, you can go to info at connectra.org. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be in the show notes. And, and there's also... It will, and we'll get that on the home. blog, of course. Yeah, I'm going. Okay. Awesome. That's really great because it's so true. And there are so many things that would be nice to be able to set out to go on a journey and not have to think as much as we have to now. So I hear you about being hit between the we'll be the ami.ca slash kellyco that's our blog 
And topic number two, birding by ear. Every time we bring this up, I get very excited. Carol, are you going to check this out? I am, and I'm glad to know that you have familiarity with this. I did not. I was never a bird watcher when I had full sight. And now that I have much less sight, I have become interested in it from a sound point of view. Mm-hmm. And I really have to say that learning some of the birds in my neighborhood has has changed my whole life here in the middle of Vancouver because I walk out the door and, you know, my neighbor may or may not wave at me, but my chickadee always says, hi there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what and I like. Say, and they sing to you. They're singing to you, singing that, good morning. Well, something like that. And I just had to tune into it. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that there are apps that are designed for this. You can record a bird call and it will identify what bird that is. But because it's March, this is why I'm bringing it up today. It's migration season. And in British Columbia, we're going to have millions of birds passing overhead in the next month. And you can do it in your backyard, but there's also a tremendous bird sanctuary just five kilometers south of Vancouver called the George Rifle Bird Conservancy. And this is an amazing place. It's 850 acres. It has all kinds of marshlands. It's around the estuary of the Delta, uh, in Delta around the Fraser River. And they are expecting many, many species to come through and, and sing their hearts out. And it is also mating season. So that's what <laughs> the the songs are that the males sing at right. this time. And they're even mm-hmm. more beautiful than the than the calls that both uh, genders do. But so tell me, cool. Ramya, what you know, have oh, you done it? No, I have not. But And and first of all, I'm so bad. I, I can't retain the information about the birds and who does what call. But I live now around a very beautiful green belt in Toronto, and there are so many birds that still stick around. Like, even right now in the middle of the winter, there's lots to hear. Uh, and I am curious about the apps that you mentioned that could identify bird calls for you, because maybe that'll give me a better, you know, Shazam idea. for birds. Yeah. Yeah, there's Shazam one called Merlin. It's Merlin. called Merlin, and you can record uh, a, a bird call from on your phone, and then it identifies what, what that tune is. But, you know, I'm doing a kind of old school. I have a CD that was made by a guy out here on Salt Spring Island called uh-huh. John Neville. And he has all of these bird calls and he gives you ways to remember them. Oh, perfect. Um, so, for instance, the Robin's call is cheer up, cheer up, cheer up, which is a, a great way to remember what the Robin sounds like. Yes. And mm-hmm. So I've listened to this repeatedly, and I really feel like I have all these new neighbors right outside my door. Aww. It's kind of amazing. That's lovely. And and Birds I Canada and people, individuals who are part of this initiative to make um, birding more accessible for the blind, low vision community, fantastic on them. Yeah, there's a free um, course by Birds Canada that is especially about this, about mm-hmm. listening. And I really do think that their approach and saying that for people who have a visual impairment, this is a way to be in nature. Yes. Where you're like, you're kind of back in it, like really in it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Are. Carol, speaking of free, let's talk about your third item, free tax filing for people with disabilities. Yes, this is put on by the Disability Alliance of, of BC in association with the Vancouver Public Library. So on March 17th, uh, between 1 and 2.30 p.m., there's a free workshop webinar on Zoom that you can register for and get individualized help for filling out your taxes. And I know this is not something anybody likes to do. I certainly don't like to do it. (laughs) But this is a do-it-yourself help for people with disabilities and I think I'm going to try to attend that one, too, because even though I have somebody to help me, I think it's good to understand just exactly what the disability tax credit is and what are all the ways that we can, you know, not only be in compliance, but make the most of of what we have in terms of benefits. They've changed out here in British Columbia just a little bit uh, with the last budget. 
So um, we're looking to maximize what we can get at, at this time. It, it's so true when it comes to knowing. We know we're responsible for anything that happens, whether our taxes and any mistake made, it comes back to you saying, hey, 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 you know, Carol Kelly, why didn't you know this was, you know, that's our responsibility. But the only way to be armed is to attend things like this, get in on that kind of thing and, and fully have the knowledge. So it is wonderful. And I, I remember, you know, here they would have free tax clinics. They were always wonderful. But it's nice to know a lot of what you should know so you can guide the person assisting you or, or mention and, and check in on. Uh, Carol, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Appreciate it. We'll put it up on the blog, uh, mi.ca slash kellyco, and we shall talk to you next month. Take care and enjoy the birding. Thank you. And Ramya, you go out and get that app, Merlin. Uh, yeah. I was going to try typing in Shazam for birds to see what comes up, but... <laughs> See what comes up. It's like a Shazam for birds. It Carol Yippel, of course, our committee reporter in Vancouver joining us, and we speak to our committee reporters here on the program, getting you all sorts of information. Up next, folks, we check in with our friends from CNIB Smart Life. Uh, Dave Epstein joins us from uh, a wolf, uh, a werewolf gear, let me say that properly, uh, to talk about their all-terrain cane. All all-terrain cane. This sounds interesting. We're going to find out all about it in two minutes right here on Kelly and Ramya. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. Welcome back. And while you're at it, folks, catch the pulse this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific on AMI-audio. This week, Joita speaks to Jessica Miner, Director of Programs and Assessment at Accessibility Indiana. They get into a discussion about parenting and disability. That's the pulse this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific on AMI-audio. Available from your favorite podcast platform. And guess what? Also via YouTube. Kelly McDonald here, hanging out with Romeo Muthin on our Monday edition of the program. Once a month on Mondays, we check in with our friends from CNIB Smart Life. Now, CNIB Smart Life is home to a myriad of accessible technologies and devices, and we get to know one of these accessible technologies or devices when we check in on our monthly chats. And... As we do this today, we're joined by Dave Epstein aware, from Awarewolf Gear to talk about the Awarewolf Gear all-terrain cane, uh, of which he is the creator. Dave, thank you for coming on, Kelly and Ramia. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, I will say I have checked out the all-terrain cane, not you know practically on a walk using it, but actually just checked out the device itself. So I'm very curious about uh, your thoughts on how it came to be and what it actually is. What makes the a Werewolf Gear All-Terrain Cane different from other mobility canes? Excellent. Um, materials and design okay. and function. Um, I needed the cane to be super strong but super light to be able to support my weight and my support my needs out on the trails. So... I built the cane out of titanium, all right? Went with a space-grade titanium alloy, so it's super light and incredibly strong. Um, the grip is also different. I'm using a 16-inch foam grip, and that gives us the ability to choke up uh, when we're climbing, when we're descending, uh, plenty of room uh, for travel on the handle. Um, half of the grip does have that flat section, Half of it is round. Um, and the grip is also able to be adjusted in height. So the cane can go really from 51 to about 62 inches in length, or about 130 to 155 centimeters. Um, I also chose the two-inch round uh, rolling ball. And altogether, the, the all-terrain cane just meets all of our needs out on the trails and keeps us safe and supported. So when you've made the decisions, when you talk about being out on the, out on the trail, out moving, moving around, <laughs> can you just expand a little bit for us 
on some of those choices you made, the size of the tip. I mean, we can say, okay, yeah, obviously you got rocks, you got different things you're going to encounter. Um, but even going up and down versus when you said, mm -hmm. hey, I got to think about using this. What are some of those other things that you took into consideration mm -hmm. for your needs that others may not even, as we listen to you talk, well, that's nice. It's sturdy. Well, it's a lot more mm -hmm. than that. It really is a lot more than that. Thank you. Um, the cane is... is I developed the cane with me in mind. What are my needs on the trail? Uh, you mentioned the ball. Uh, I, I tried all sorts of ball, different tips. What, what do I need globally uh, for my life out here in Arizona? Uh, the smaller tips, the marshmallows, the bulldog tips, they're just too small. They're getting caught in everything, the rocks, the roots, everything. Uh, I tried the... Um, the shark wheel really didn't oh. meet my needs at all. Uh, the Dakota disc didn't meet at all. And a big component of the all-terrain cane is that it's able to be vertically loaded to support our weight. And, and most of those hips just didn't come through. So my selection of the rolling ball tip, uh, it's a five centimeter or two inch rolling ball. It just meets all the needs. It skims over the sand and it smashes into the rocks and the yep. roots, and it just performs everywhere. Um, mm. it, it's just I find it to be the the most all-terrain tip. Uh, we did make sure that the cane itself does accept that half-inch universal slip-on. So, if it's not your tip of choice, or when the tip does wear out, pop it off, slide on a new one. The one I tried, it was uh, stuck in there pretty good. So it's just going to have to stay there for a while. But good, <laughs> good point, though, on um, how the, the ball is helpful in all kinds of situations. And, and that could be from, you know, barely any kind of real physical exertion to uh, the opposite, right? But talk about what people have been doing already compared to using the all-terrain cane. So some blind hikers use yes. two tracking poles and a sighted guide. Uh, why did you pursue to do it this way with a supported mobility cane? I love that. Thank you. I never thought to go with trekking poles. Mm. Um, and I want to take us back to that very critical day on the trails where I, I, I had my aha moment and realized the need for this cane uh, I lost direct sunlight and I lost the contrast and depth perception. And it was at this time in my, my, my blindness where I was in, in mid training for orientation and mobility. So I had a taste of what the, the mobility cane can do. Uh, it's role for obstacle detection, terrain changes, navigation. Right. So on that day on the chair, uh, on the trail where, where I lost everything and I panicked, uh, my wife turned to me and said, you know, what's the problem? And I said, I, I don't belong here and I, I need something. I need, I need this, but I don't know what this is. Well, what I was doing when I was saying this was I was simulating uh, caning on the trail with a, a, a very strong cane, uh, again, identifying the rocks, the roots, everything that's tripping me up. So, at that aha moment, I only thought of a supportive mobility cane. Um, I, I can hear my mobility instructor talking to me about <laughs> when we approach the stairs, we come to the stairs with the cane in your right. hand, what do you do? The cane yep. goes into the left yep. hand, we grab onto the wrist with the right hand. So my takeaway was the right hand does it all. Uh, it, it provides the mobility and the obstacle detection and the ambulation, but it also does the support. So the, the choice or the decision to go with a supportive mobility cane really wasn't a, a choice at all. It was the logical step for me. Yeah. Yeah. And also poles. I mean, for us, we need that for balance, that other hand to be available to do other things, like you said, whether it's grabbing a railing, whether it's if you're leaning to uh, to support yourself, that hand just needs to be there for that peace of mind, that cautiousness, that awareness of where I am, and to give give me my balance. 
Um, mm -hmm. I think we're so used to that. I mean, I've missed a step or whatever, jabbed my cane down into the ground, and as a big guy, man, I've, I've, I've almost bent canes in half that way. But So mm -hmm. when you talk about the support and the reasons and the things you're going to use this for, of course these things, when you had the aha moment, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think, David, for you, the, the wonderful thing is you're talking about what you need. You can't obviously decide for everyone, but I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of, I'm listening to you talk saying, yep, check that off in my box and things that uh, I kind of would need. Um, the alt altering cane, would you say it's just for hiking or could we use it for any other applications? And for whom? I, I developed the, the cane for me to continue hiking. When I was back in Rhode Island on the East Coast visiting the Grand Dude, uh, I found myself on the beaches and it, I, I was a little bit annoyed that I was the only blind person on the beach. And, and I, I thought, why? This is, you know, there's no reason why other blind people can't be shorelining, <laughs> literally, oh. Oh. Uh, with me <laughs> uh, on, on the beaches. And, and I thought, you know what? It, it's, it's good for the beaches to find the sandcastles and the holes that the kids dig and for, for the rocks. And the parks and the playgrounds and the snowy environments. And next thing you know, it's it's for any blind person who who wants to get off off the asphalt and to get onto the beaten path to explore their environments to to go where they want to be. So I would say if if if, if you're a low vision individual and you want to be anywhere but on the asphalt. Now we've got a, a, a tool, a, 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 a proper tool that we can rely on, that'll get it done, that we can be safe with. And, and it does offer that level of support um, that we need wherever we're, wherever we're going. Um, with our other hand free for to, to remain free, mm -hmm. we've got one cane that gives us the support. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think of uh, several conversations that we've even had here on the show with people who want to go out exploring independently and ad adventuring independently um, into the beaten paths, as you said, and not necessarily wanting to take an arm or go with, uh, you know, that kind of support and really just be able to use your cane or whatever other methods mm -hmm. to walk by yourself and, and do these things. Um, so that's one kind of amazing, awesome uh, prospect of this all-terrain cane. And I'm curious about, because I know that there are lots of um, interesting changes coming to the classic mobility cane now, right? Like last week we mm. talked about the smart canes and, and WeWalk and that kind of thing. And now we're talking about the all-terrain cane. Your concerns or thoughts about presenting this out to the world, and I'm thinking... <laughs> uh, vertical loading and mobility instructors, you know, people who know what the cane, the depth of it is for blind, low vision people. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have concerns about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is well, that yes, the, 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 the moments of people saying, oh, no, that's just not safe. That's just not done. I, yeah, I, like, does this make I, I sense? Find myself, mm -hmm. Well, I find myself presenting to O&M instructors, uh, to the people who, my very first lesson um, in, in, in O&M training, the, the instructors like, the first thing we do, never vertically load your cane. Never, never. Why? Because it's not meant for that. Why? Because it's not strong enough. Why? Because it's, and I kept asking why, um, and I never really got a, a good answer. Now, when I was on, um, when I was, I'm sorry, I just, it went okay. away on you. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, um, it's, I think some of that too is they like to say, it's not a support cane. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I just had a technical issue for a quick second. Um, I'm presenting to these mobility instructors, and they're saying you shouldn't do that. But I, I need the I, I need this for my support. I I know I'm breaking paradigms, right? Uh, and I'm expecting the rotten tomatoes to be hurled in my direction. 
but my experience <laughs> is 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 not that their their eyes are open and they're like we need to hear more we are in the position where we we have to present to our clients the best devices for them and if this is a device that'll keep them safe this is a cane that'll survive a car door or the the the, the dirt roads that you have out out in in, in where you live and the world is not paved and smooth their eyes are open they're very very interested in this and i was surprised i yeah. honestly thought this you know i i'm 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 i cannot break paradigm here uh why because i might not be safe why and i started asking those questions but you know what i mm-hmm. I, I i i stood my ground and i said i developed this with me in mind what do i need and 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 then i looked around and said other people can take advantage of this yeah so I, I i quickly put that out of my mind and and the rotten fruit the rod that never happened so i'm i'm, I'm pleasantly uh surprised well we're i'm seeing it um you know, in people's hands, people demoing it at different CNIB locations. We know that CNIB Smart Life is affiliating with you, and uh, I think it's cool. There are a lot of the kind of classic uh, elements to it that you've kept because we know the white cane as it is, but also uh, some specific things that you've put in exactly as you've been saying, because of your needs. And I think that that makes people curious, and I'm very excited to hear that people are curious um, around the room and wanting to hear more about your choices. Dave, thank you for joining us. It's been an amazing opportunity. Uh, thank you. you. You've got an amazing show and what you're doing is, is, is terrific for the community. So uh, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of this. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Dave. And uh, yeah, conversations like this one with Dave is always great to showcase and bring onto the show. Dave Epstein is the developer of the Werewolf Gear All-Terrain Cane. Uh, If you do get to check it out, he extended some of the uh, parts and materials and ways of the cane. And you can go to your CNIB Smart Life representative to find out more. Coming up next, a very important conversation as we look back on Know Your Rights. Danielle McLaughlin and Karis Wivel join us to talk about the report on the Emergencies Act. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. Working our way through the Monday edition of Kelly and Rumya. Thank you for being with us. We're settling in. And if you uh, can't be here for the live show, folks, remember, check us out on one of the repeats, AMI-audio and TV. Have us at 10 p.m. Eastern, AMI-TV overnight at 1 a.m. and AMI-audio at 6 a.m. Eastern time. So do check us out no matter how it best works for you. We'd love to have you on board whenever you have time for the program. Well, Rumi and I always appreciate knowing a little bit about our rights and hearing some engaging conversation when we bring Danielle McLaughlin in. And today is not at all any different. Great conversation, important one ahead. Let's bring her on for Know Your Rights. Did you know that everyone has rights? No matter who we are, we all qualify. But what happens when freedoms collide? The answers are rarely simple, but always interesting. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, to talk about civil liberties and human rights on Know Your Rights. Always, Danielle, I say fedoras off to the conversations you bring us. I say welcome back to the show, and I say, would you please bring on our topic and fantastic guest? I will. Thank you so much. I am very happy that uh, we get to bring our good friend, Kara Zwiebel, on the show today. Kara is the director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and she's a strong advocate for fairness. Kara represented CCLA at the recent hearings into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act in 2022. Welcome, Kara. Thanks for having me, Danielle. It's so nice to see you too. It's what, what a treat. You know, you've I know you've been extremely busy, um, and uh, I'm very grateful that you can share a little of your time with uh, me and with our listeners. Um, simple question, or at least it ought to be, but I don't think it is. What's an emergency, and who defines it? 
So it's a great question. And you're right that the answer isn't simple. And I mean, for the purposes of the discussion we're having, the, the use of the Emergencies Act, the legislation itself, which is a, a piece of federal legislation, defines what a national emergency is. And it also defines four different types of national emergencies. And the type of emergency that was declared last February was a public order emergency. And um, the, the definition of an emergency under that act talks about it being an urgent and critical situation, talks about it being something that can't be dealt with under existing laws or that's beyond the capacity or authority of, of provinces to deal with. Um, and the public order element in particular talks about there being the emergency arising out of a, a threat to the security of Canada. But of course, each of those elements has their own definitions. So, so there's a lot packed in. But for the purposes of the Emergencies Act at the federal level, it's ultimately the, the cabinet that will make a decision as to whether there is an emergency. Wow. So it, it as I guess, not awfully simple to decide. I, I notice that it, it speaks to the ordinary laws, the ones that we use each and every day, um, that if, if those laws can't handle the situation, then it would make it reasonable or, or um, uh, okay to use the Emergencies Act, but I understand that um, there's a lot of disagreement on what that situation actually was. Can you tell us what position you and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association took with regard to the invocation of the Emergencies Act last year? And also a little bit about the role that you yourself played because uh, I kept tuning in and, and seeing you in all the media. Um, so the, the the CCLA's position was that um, the the legal threshold set out under the Emergencies Act was not met in the circumstances that the government invoked the legislation. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about what that really means. A lot of people have suggested to us that that's because we were supportive of the protests or that we um, we didn't feel that there was anything unlawful happening. That's not the position we took at all. Um, you know, we recognize that um, aspects of the protest did involve illegal activity, that they could be restrained and restricted in some respects. Um, the question was whether we have existing adequate legal tools to do that or if we needed special emergency measures. And our view was that we did not need special emergency measures. Um, police uh, across the country deal with protests all the time, including highly disruptive protests, sometimes even dangerous and violent protests, and they have the tools to do that. Now, there definitely was a problem with resources and coordination of those resources to address what was going on, um, and the, the Commission's report talks a lot about that, but in terms of there being adequate legal tools, um, our view was that there were, and also that this, this threshold of a threat to the security of Canada, as it's defined in the law, wasn't met. Um, the role that I played at the commission, um, CCLA sought standing to be a party at the commission. So um, groups and individuals could seek to participate in the in the commission's work. And if that was granted by the commissioner, then there was an opportunity to participate in terms of, you know, um, providing documents, uh, questioning witnesses, participating in the policy phase. So we we were involved in um, in hearing from and, and in many cases examining some of the witnesses that testified um, and, and also making substantive closing submissions to the commission about um, some of the findings we, we hoped they would make. And I did that um, with uh, co-counsel for the CCLA, uh, Eva Krajewska, who is a lawyer at a firm called Hennen Hutchison Robitaille. Um, and... And, you know, the, the commission process was a really, really interesting one. And even though, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, even though uh, some of the conclusions that the commissioner arrived at are not ones that we agree with, I think that the, the commission process was a really important tool for, for transparency and for holding the government accountable. Well, I, I was personally grateful that you got to ask some good, hard questions. <laughs> and I think that really was what it's about. You know, the thing about tools I, I you know reminds me of of so many um rights issues you know i always have believed that that rights are tools if you don't use them they don't work um similarly laws you know if 
if there is a law against uh, keeping people awake all night by honking your horn, um, but you don't do anything about uh, uh, that particular law, if the police don't come in and, and charge people, then that law isn't going to do you an awful lot of good. I guess one of the questions is, um, you know, if policing has failed, does that mean that the use of the act is is reasonable, is, is justified? Um, does the Canadian Civil Liberties Association think that the Ottawa blockade was lawful in on its face? Was, you know, was that a a protest, uh, as so many protests are, that that uh, we have the you know we have freedom of expression and the right to protest. Was was this one that fell under that in your view? So I think that there were there are aspects of the protests that fall under that. And and this is the problem with sort of trying to characterize the the whole thing as as one thing. And one of the things that the commission report does quite well is talk about how there really wasn't sort of a cohesive um you know, organizing group, that people were there for different reasons, that people participated in the protest in different ways. Um, obviously, you know, blockading roadways for extended periods of time, honking your horn all night, those are contrary to, to bylaws. There's provincial laws that that violates. There's criminal code bylaw, criminal code provisions that that violates. So those things can, can be and, and are in many cases illegal. But we do recognize that you know, some technically unlawful activity might be protected by the broad scope of, of freedom of expression and freedom of peaceful assembly. But there were definitely aspects of this that were um, offside the law and that, you know, and that could have been sort of um, could have been dealt with by charges and prosecutions that the problem, you know, at least for the first few weeks was really that the police didn't feel like they had adequate resources on the ground to allow them to effectively and safely enforce the law. Um, and, and really it was a matter of coordination that, that ultimately got that happening. And in our view, that coordination doesn't and shouldn't require the use of emergency legislation to accomplish because what using the emergencies act means is that instead of having, you know, parliament debate and discuss a law and then decide that it should be law, the executive branch just declares a law to be law. And um, and then the debate and discussion comes after uh, by parliament. And it's good that we have a lot of safeguards in the Emergencies Act to, um, you know, to try to make sure that that oversight does happen, that we have this requirement to have a public inquiry. Those are all really important strengths to the Emergencies Act, but we are, in using emergency legislation, sort of flipping the order, the, the ordinary sort of order of operations in, in terms of how how we make law. So it's kind of an override, um, you know, OG, uh, it looks like enforcement isn't happening. Uh, perhaps we'll just override this whole situation. Um, I, it, I found it personally quite troubling. Um, am I correct that the Rouleau report says that the use of the Emergencies Act was in fact constitutional? Is, it, does that, is that one of the conclusions uh, of the report? Um, I, I think I would phrase it a little differently. I think what the what the report says is that um, is that the government had reasonable grounds to believe that there was a public order emergency amounting to a national emergency under the terms of the act, and right. um, and also in looking at the emergency measures that were enacted, that those were appropriate and effective. Um, and and that language to us makes a difference because one thing that the commissioner does recognize is that his task and his mandate under um, you know under the the order that he's given to to conduct the commission um, is to do certain things is to sort of examine the circumstances giving rise to the emergency examine the government's response to it um, but he is very clear that assessing the legality ultimately of the government's actions is the role of the courts. And that is a separate process and a separate accountability mechanism and one that the CCLA and some other groups are making use of by seeking judicial review of the government's decision to use the Emergencies Act. So can you you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I, I think many people 
perhaps even the people who live in the Ottawa neighborhood that was affected by by the blockade figure, well, this is the end of the road. The Rouleau report comes out. It says that uh, it was reasonable to use the Emergencies Act, but you don't believe that's the end of the road. Is that correct? They, they, <laughs> no, you're, I think you're there, moving there into is, the courts. Yeah, there there is this other mechanism, and it's a mechanism that is contemplated by the legislation and, and was contemplated by Parliament when it passed the Emergencies Act. It, it anticipated and it created this language of, of the government having reasonable grounds to, to believe that there's a national emergency to say this is something that courts can review. Courts are used to looking at, you know, did police have reasonable grounds to effect an arrest or were there reasonable grounds to believe that, you know, a search was necessary in, in issuing a search warrant? So, so th that's a tool um, and a standard that the courts are used to using. And what the court will be doing is looking at the very specific question of whether the legal threshold in the act was met and whether the um, emergency measures that were in place were constitutional or or whether they you know overshot the mark in some cases. Um, and that, that is our position that some of the, the measures were overly broad and captured things that they ought not to have captured. So a lot of evidence uh, came out of the inquiry. Um, can that evidence be used once you go to court to, to make the arguments uh, about the constitutionality of the use of, of, the, uh, of the Act? Most of it will not be used. Uh, most of it, the, because the judicial review is, is doing a very specific thing, it's reviewing, you know, the government's decision and decision-making process in invoking the act. And so the government is supposed to put forward a record that sort of lays out, here is here is the record that demonstrates how we made this decision. The government at the outset of our, our litigation um, put together a very slim record of, of what, you know, sort of the paper behind that decision was a relatively slim one. Um, as we got more information from the, the commission, we did seek to have some of that evidence put before the judge in the judicial review. And we were successful, even though the government were did try to resist having some of that evidence admitted. Um, now that we were successful, the government has asked for some more evidence from the commission to be put forward, and the court has agreed for some of that. Uh, but it's still a very narrow subset and really focused on the government's decision. So, you know, issues around sort of the, the um, difficulties that law enforcement had and, and coordination issues around um, you know, there was evidence, obviously, from protesters. There was evidence from residents in in Ottawa. Um, those pieces of evidence that are part of the commission's record will not be part of the judicial review. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I have to say that that you know it's a really complex issue, and I you've really helped to clarify it too. But you know, there there are so many uh, images that that people have heard and seen about that period of time last winter. Um, and, uh, you know, just just because the act, the use of the uh, the invocation of the act was effective doesn't mean it was right. And, you know, I, I often think in my mind about, you know, what's the best way to get rid of an, a fly that's buzzing around, maybe not using, a, you know, an atomic weapon. So, I you know, I'm just waiting to see what the courts will say. And will you yourself be arguing this uh, in the court, Kara? <laughs> No, we have excellent counsel who will be doing that, one of whom is, is Eva that I mentioned earlier, who was um, with excellent. me representing the CCLA before the, the commission. Um, her and, and a colleague, uh, Brandon Chang, will be representing CCLA uh, before the judicial review. And and I, I, I do just want to say, you know, I know people have different views about, about the appropriateness and obviously about the, the protests themselves, and we don't at all diminish how... Um, how scary this probably was yes. for many people, particularly in Ottawa, particularly those who were facing, you know, racial harassment, um, you know, there's allegations of, of assaults and things like that. So this, these are these are scary things. Um, they are. And I, I don't think ultimately, you know, many people who have a view that this was justified, we probably won't change their mind. But I do think that having the court take a look at this in addition to the commission just gives everyone you know, a number of different perspectives to sort of review and think through and, and arrive ultimately at their own conclusions about whether what the government did was appropriate. Well, thank you. I think what we, we really have done is, is 
kept the conversation going and I didn't want to minimize what people in Ottawa went through. It was nasty and scary and you're quite right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Kara. It's as always a pleasure to speak with you and uh, have you help clarify some complicated issues. Bye-bye now. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Bye-bye. Awesome, Danielle. Kara, as usual, fantastic conversation. A lot to take away there, a lot for us to learn, especially when you think about the language and what we can do better or differently going forward. We'll step aside and see what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown. We'll check out our program uh, after this break. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Remember to check out our podcast, folks. We toss the vanity card on the end of the second half of it. You can subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. Rumya, if you would, please. Maybe a segment or two that one may want to go back and check out, or if they're just joining us late, for sure not want to miss. Well, we spoke we spoke with Ness Murby and uh, Eva Fayesh uh, of Ness Murby Transcending, and this is a docuseries that's debuting on AMI-tv this Wednesday, so keep an ear out for that on the app and on AMI-tv. But this conversation was just so meaningful to me, and uh, you know, Ness talking about uh, being a trans male com- competing uh, in low-vision discus and other sports and just being... That kind of having that kind of journey to go through and the personal impact, you know, it has on him and his partner, Eva, and his kid, but also for future generations. Right. And he got into a lot of it. We heard from Eva and her perspective and role as well. Just so thoughtful. If you get a chance to go back and listen to it or share, please do. Yeah, I think it inspires you to check out the series because there's so many truths, so many feelings as as, perspect, as the perspective that, that Ness has, and and I think we're not going to have punches pulled. We're going to get we're going to get that perspective, that honesty, and of course that's what you want. Um, maybe we can't walk in someone's shoes all the time, but really wonderful segment uh, w- with that conversation. And looking forward to what what we hear, what happens, and the openness in that uh, that program. Want to invite Paul Daniel in here to tell us a little bit about what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown. You can find them on AMI-tv, 9 a.m. in the morning, also available via podcast. Uh, Happy Monday, sir. What's on tap tomorrow for the Tuesday edition? Happy Monday, Kelly. On tomorrow's show, uh, Luxturna is a gene therapy that targets the RPE65 gene and has been successful to restore some uh, sight in, in patients. And so we've we talked, sorry, it was announced last week that Ontario will cover the costs of the treatment for patients in the province. And so we'll speak with Dr. Larissa Moniz from Fighting Blindness Canada about the decision. And uh, Apple is rumored to be working on augmented virtual reality augmented reality, virtual reality headset, had to work on that to help those with vision loss. Nelson Rego from Coolblind Tech will tell us more about it. And we'll have a weekly news quiz as Alex Smythe, Karen McGee, and Greg David do battle with their knowledge of current events. It's the virtual reality, the reality of saying virtual reality and the augmented virtual. Anyway, Paul, awesome, pal. We'll <laughs> my reality is, 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 is augmented for you, Kelly. <laughs> and, and I know my reality is just so different than Paul Daniel. <laughs> I'm having a headache right now thinking about it. <laughs> I know. Don't, don't, don't. It can be scary. Very scary. Thanks, man. <laughs> Take care, Kelly. 9 a.m. in the morning, you can find them on AMI-tv as they assemble and bring you Now with Dave Brown. Uh, great conversations uh, that are ahead on the program. Do check them out. Also, like us, available via podcast. All right, Ramya, tomorrow we got a wonderful lineup on our Tuesday edition, but of course we'd say that no matter what day you were tuning in to us for, folks. Uh, on the program tomorrow during our parenting conversation, Lucia is going to be joined by a special guest to help illustrate the impact supportive and kind parenting can do in a practical sense, folks. We're also talking to Dr. Danielle Jeanca, and she says that the human-animal bond is woven inextricably into all our lives, and that's whether you're living with an animal or not. So we're talking about this, and I'm really looking forward to diving into it with her. Really? Whether you live with an animal or not? including you, Kels. Wow. Including you. I'll have to wait and see if I buy into that tomorrow. Beginning at 2 p.m. Eastern, folks. 
We're waving at you. Have a wonderful night. Talk to you then. I'm not a huge social media person. I do like to play on Twitter and I like to respond and engage with people a little bit out there. But I get very conscious of how terrible of a writer I am at times and trying to get my thoughts squeezed into a small amount of characters or smaller amount means I can't go on and on, which is always a good thing, especially for me and especially when I'm trying to write something down. But I do enjoy interacting with people out there. So when I say that on the air, hey guys, I love the follow, appreciate your time. I, I really do mean that. Um, some people are real masters at it, including making blog posts and really being able to share. Some people are just tremendous writers. I always find that fascinating now that we have such a diverse media world that a lot of broadcasters have to do blog posts, have to write some work out, even if they're a spoken word broadcaster, even if they're not a journalist. A lot of time, a lot of on-air people have to do some actual sitting down, reflecting and writing. Okay. But where I really find it fascinating is a lot of the sports people, and that's now part of their criterion. I used to wonder, why the heck are these sports broadcasters getting all of these print media people to come in and basically let them learn how to be an on-air talent on the go? And now I understand, as things have changed so much, you see a lot of these people having to write as part of their position. Go check out the piece they posted on X dot whatever. And I think it's really refreshing. It's really neat. I envy that because, you know, I'm not really that much of a writing person. Um, my stuff would be sh shorter, long lines, but short content <laughs> and trying not to say as much because that means I have to write it. And then I have to get it checked over by someone who, who would probably edit it, which means basically rewrite it with the way I do things. But it is something I've tried to appreciate more, tried to read people's stuff to see what they're doing. And I, I get it. We don't look at writing and putting out content, whether it's a column or some of these online uh, forums. We don't look at it the way that it was looked at in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, you had to have that background for writing. You had to be taught it. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that some of the people who are writing that a lot haven't picked up courses or have done the same thing, observed and been taught by some pretty damn good people. Um, I, I just think that, wow, there's that other level, that other game you have to have now in your repertoire. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.